union with Christ, if that is not like one of the sweetest gifts that you taste each day, then the question is, what are you eating? And in that, a bastard like me gets included in the promises of Christ. Look, if that doesn't bring awe, I don't know what does. When I grow up, I want to be like Dan Allender, who may be America's most widely read Christian psychologist. He's written books like Cry of the Soul, Wounded Heart, and To Be Told, all books that explore deep wounds and the way healing occurs. I'm so glad he's with us today. From the Center for Faith and Work here in St. Louis, this is Working with me, your host, Dan Doriani. Here we strive to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith in the workplace. Through conversations with doctors, athletes, teachers, executives, and more, we seek to engage those who desire to do significant work, to practice love and justice in their work, and who dare to change their corner of the world through that work. So I am today with one of the most interesting people I know. It's always a pleasure to talk to Dan Allender, who says all sorts of stimulating and sometimes delightfully crazy things. He's got a lot of credentials. He got an MA in theology. He's got a PhD in counseling psychology. You've been a, you've taught counseling for years and years. You've had a private practice in counseling, which of course informs your your teaching. You started a school or co-founded a school of theology and psychology in 1997, and for reasons that are um, evasive to all of us, you acceded to become. You, can, you acceded and conceded to become the president of that school, even though in your book, Leading with a Limp, you kind of said, why on earth am I doing this? This doesn't fit me. Tell, just comment on some aspect of my micro uh, biographical sketch. What, what would you like to tell people about yourself? Well, I, I, you know, you don't want to critique Dan Dorian. You don't. <laughs> but but I am, I, I'm going to, and yeah, that yeah, is... Right. I didn't get a master of arts. I I am a master of divinity. You're a master of divinity. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, there is no degree that is more ridiculously named than to think of someone like me. Now, when I think about you, you are a master of divinity. Yeah, you're... But but for me... You need to start smoking different things. Absolutely. So even... That master's degree primarily gained because my best friend was going to go to seminary. Right. And I was going to go to law school, but I forgot to take my LSATs. Yeah. So uh, he goes, why don't you just come with me to seminary for a year? You can think about God and then go to law school. So I end up at Westminster Theological Seminary, a very, very fine school. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's clear I don't fit. Yeah. I don't fit. So in some ways, I have been the, uh, what could be viewed as the bastard child of evangelicalism. And in that gifting of not quite fitting, not quite sure my parentage, nonetheless, uh, I have been somehow grafted into the goodness of God. So yeah, I ended up as a president accidentally, which is sort of how I got to seminary, and a lot of how I have fortunately or unfortunately stumbled through my life. So yeah, it's a, a thank you for that introduction. Yeah, even if it was even if it was uh, imperfect. Although I have to say I called you Master of Theology, not Master of Arts. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Hey, you know, I got to tell you, the uh, I also plan to come to Westminster for a year. 
I was going to be a philosopher. I was just going to learn a little Bible, a little theology, so I could be a good Christian philosopher. And, and next thing you know, I'm stuck for, for uh, decades, you know, doing something I thought I'd be doing for nine months. Uh, but I love your statement that you don't fit. You know, don't you think that almost everybody in the world says, I don't fit? I'm the bastard child at times. Isn't that part of the human experience? Well, it, if it isn't, then you've not faced the reality of living at least somewhat east of Eden. Uh, yeah, you know, right. living in a fallen world, if you fit well, you've either conceded to one structure or another that ultimately takes your very life. Yeah. And so obedience in a dogmatic structure to any system will eventually imprison you. So yeah, we're all strangers to some degree. And that I think is part of the remarkable reality that as an orphan, uh, I am beloved. Right. I mean, that's still to this day after more than four decades, I still sort of wonder how is the gospel true? So yeah, I, I would say uh, a beloved no longer bastard, but nonetheless, maybe an odd child. Yeah. Boy, uh, you know, it's just so true. I mean, uh, I love the passages about aliens and and widows and orphans. I know you've got a book coming out about that uh, shortly. But, you know, I, I just am so pleased because I feel like an alien and a sojourner. I am a sojourner. You are too. And uh, we don't fit. And that's that's part of the, of the condition of, of life. And I'm just delighted that the Bible has so much about adoption of, of and the welcome of sojourners and widows and the nobodies, and, and you got to treat them with justice. And you know, even the sojourner gets the Sabbath day because you can't exploit them, right? So, hey, tell us yeah. a little bit about your forthcoming book. That's not this. It's not a book promotion uh, I, uh, interview or conversation, but tell us a little bit about your interest in that theme. Well, the focus of my work for a lot of decades has been on trauma, right. particularly sexual trauma, sexual abuse. Right. And I, I didn't ask for that, but I think a lot of our callings we fall into. And in that work, you know, I've been asking the question again and again and again. Uh, you know, the gospel is the resolve of living in a fallen world. So how do we engage our story with the gospel story? And again, not to say that it's synthetic and always clear, but that's the intersection in some sense of theology and a biblical anthropology or what is often called psychology. Yeah, so, right. I mean, that's been my work. And in that, I keep coming back to scripture, keep coming back to the question of, we're not the first people to name trauma. We're not the first people to have to engage it. How do we do so? And the Psalms have been crucial. Yes. Uh, Tremper Longman and I wrote a book on uh, cry of the soul, trying to engage the Psalms. And, you know, and the Psalms, as you know only too well, have a place for praise and thanksgiving, but also lament and complaint. And so that level of honesty, can we tell the truth? but also know there's a truth greater than what truth we know. Yeah. And can we hold the tension between, yeah, my life at times feels like nothing but a complaint, yet I also know my heart is meant to be engaged in the, in the greatest sense of joy 
through praise and thanksgiving. So that's what the book is attempting to engage. How do we live within the reality of being orphans, widows, and strangers? But also know we're called to be prophets, priests, and kings. So that's that's the that's the story we're attempting to engage. I, I love it, and I'm I'm looking forward to reading it uh, as soon as it comes out. So uh, maybe you and I share a distaste for things like life verses and Bible verse of the year, but uh, my Bible verse this year is Psalm 129, one and two. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let's all say it together now. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth yet they have not prevailed against me. And, you know, the plowers plowed upon my back. They, they made their furrows long, but mm. the Lord has cut mm. the cords of the wicked. I mean, I just mm. love that so much. And in a sense, that's what you work, that's your field of labor yeah. for yeah. years. And it, it, the, the sweetness of what I get to do is I get to be involved in people's lives in story, meaning right. I get to hear the particularities, not just the broad themes, but the particularities of people's lives, but always within that framework of asking, how does death, how does resurrection, Mm. how does ascension, not saying that's all, but saying at least it is the death of Jesus that gives me the courage to name my own inevitable death, but also the decay that's part of living in a fallen world, but never without the playful, imaginative power of resurrection. Right. So the reality that we we live in the tension. I mean, one of the first concepts I ever like went, oh yeah, uh, when I was in seminary was the already not yet. Right. You know, if we can hold that tension, we are saved. We are not saved. And we will be saved. If we can hold that, then why as believers are we not the best at entering a level of ambivalence and ambiguity without resorting to a kind of end of the line dogmatism? That's been one of the strange things about being a believer over these decades in that often what I find within the believing community is a desire for a definitive end to all questions in one particular word or approach, rather than the freedom to begin to keep asking really hard questions, knowing we have a foundation, but we get to, dangerous word, co-create with God the story that he's writing on our behalf. Right. Boy, uh, there's a lot of rich uh, rich points there. And uh, writing the story on our behalf, boy, I really want to pick up on that. And I love the idea of co-creator. If I could just say, um, uh, I tell people who are thinking about having babies, that the most godlike thing you can do is have a child on purpose. Yes. Uh, to, to choose to bring a life into existence that will literally live on and on and on and on. And so I, I want to affirm that assertion that we're co-creators and we're co-script writers, right? God writes a script, yes. but we, we write it too. One of your books that has helped a lot of people uh, focuses in on that. And, um, you know, I, I personally gained a lot from two of your books. I mean, I've read, I don't know, four or five of your books, but uh, two of them, you know, The Healing Path and To Be Told. And you and I both had a lot of troubles in childhood. And I mean, I remember 10 years ago, we were hanging yes. around with Scotty Smith yep. 
and, and we both realized that we'd had guns pulled on us by people who wanted to kill us maybe right now when we were teenagers. That, that's, that's our common experience besides Westminster, right? And, and it's another story how that happened. But now I'll just say you, Dan, may be in the same realm of strangeness. And so they're strange and bite strange. And, uh, you know, I, I have deeply appreciated your life and work, but you're also an odd, you're an odd dude. <laughs> well, I take that as a compliment because all, you should. All, all dubious compliments should be taken as, uh, sh- all dubious comments should be taken as compliments. It makes life so much better. But in your books, you stress the value of journaling. And um, I, I found, I can't say enough how helpful I found that. I had, a, I had a difficult childhood and my dad died. I was 53 and I was at a loss. In, in God's providence, the day before he died, for the first time in my life, having no idea he was going to die, I lamented my youth mm-hmm. for eight hours straight. And then he died that night, which I consider one mm-hmm. of God's great gifts. But I, was, mm-hmm. but I, I considered it that I was completely at a loss. And you said, journal it. And it was very beneficial. Why? Why is journaling? Why do you tell people that? And how is it healing? Yeah, well, part of the answer to that is, look, we've got a, a fundamental fragmentation in our brain when we have known any level of trauma. Mm. And again, not to get too boring here, but you know, if we talk about the left hemisphere as being largely language-based, mm. linear, mm. structured, logical, if we talk about the right hemisphere as being primarily uh, images, sensations, emotion, the dilemma is trauma fragments. And in some ways, the holism, the holistic reality is we're meant to be this interplay uh, of, of thought and emotion. But what happens when we know trauma is that our left hemisphere, which we have much more sense of control over, right. takes a dominance. And it, in some sense, shuts down the more problematic, emotional, image-based, splintered mm. affect. Which we want to so, forget about anyway. Absolutely. Especially living in a fallen world. So right. part of writing, and again, when we write literally with a pen, mm-hmm. we are accessing a different part of our brain than when we're actually typing on a computer. Right. And if we actually access parts of our right hemisphere through writing, literal writing, what we begin to see is the potential for a reorientation, mm-hmm. reintegration. So we begin to feel, we begin to have some of the emotional what we fear to be baggage actually begin to be entered. It's a bit like the Psalms. When we write and sing the Psalms, we begin to feel and think together. So in part, part of the answer is we've got to join God in integrity, meaning integration, a kind of oneness. And so when we're talking about Romans 12, the restoring, the healing, of our brain, our noose, we often think it's the left hemisphere only. And the answer is, it's the entire brain that we need to be working on. And research has indicated again and again, by writing, we feel, 
and bring a level of integration to our deeply divided brain and to our deeply divided self. Boy, you're constantly saying so many interesting things. Um, but you know, partly what this talks, what this speaks to is the fact that you and I both like to have our students write notes during class and not type them because you learn so much more when you write it. Yep. You can't go as yep. fast, but it's been proven over and over again. You simply assimilate more when you write. And if it's great stuff, type it up later on, but you learn through your fingers. Absolutely. And, and actually the research has indicated if you doodle Yes. You will learn more yes. than if you write with a. I I I I tried one year saying no computers, right. and that freaked out, you know, a bunch of millennials to a point where I might as well have been stoned to death. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the way we learn has to hold the interplay of what what story brings, yes. not just information, but in some sense religious affectations, as our dear Jonathan Edwards yeah, would speak yeah. of. And that has to be held together by an engagement with our bodies. We so seldom yeah. think our body is actually engaged in the educational process. Right. That's great. Which is why, among other things, people learn things better sometimes when they walk than when they're yeah. just sitting. But also, uh, like, you know, learning vocabulary, learning another language, you, you, you learn Latin better while walking up and down the street than by sitting in a chair. Um, and for our viewers, uh, Dan is, uh, for our non-viewers, I mean, Dan is nodding his head vigorously, saying he agrees yes. with me. Um, but it's also true that, you know, when we, when we do this process of running, I think um, the emotion, you know, it's like, uh, you know, say you had, a tra you had a trauma when you were, I don't know, 5 or 15 or 25 or 35. Everybody has a trauma eventually. I think um, you you uh, you kind of become that age again sometimes yes. if you're doing it yeah. right, and so you know it's not like I'm writing about what happened to me when I'm 15 or 25. I'm writing it. I am 15 or 25 if I enter into it, and writing can do that. I think I, I think I learned that from you and others, but I learned it from you. Yeah, I mean, let's just say the notion of what is called the unitary self is just a absolute fiction, the mm. idea that we are multiple senses of self. Mm. And, you know, we've got a autobiographical self. We've got, in one sense, a somatic self. Right. We've just got multiple selves. So the fact that we're not talking about inner child, we're talking about the fact that when you remember what it was like to be humiliated when you were eight years of age, your brain, neuronically, is configured to bring not just thoughts about the setting, context, right. characters, dialogue, but actually to feel mm -hmm. what that eight-year-old felt in the middle of it. So right. the complication is, I, I am as old as I am. I'm not eight, but I'm also eight, 12, and 22, and et cetera, et cetera. So we, we need to have a sense, again, of the complexity and beauty, even in brokenness, of the human self. But we also need to know that we reflect something of the complexity of our creator. Yeah. Let me try something out on you. Um, you know, the phenomenon of dad jokes. And of course, kids, you know, think it's terrible when their kids tell dad jokes when they're 18 or 27 or something. Um, but I, my take on it is that the reason why dad jokes occur is because dads see their child who's 34, let's say, but they still see the seven-year-old in that child. 
and they still see the nine and 11 and 14 year old, then they, that the child, their beloved child is all those ages at once. And so they know that they remember that that child who's now 34 thought this was hilarious when she was seven. And so you still, you want to bring that out. But what you're saying, I think we agree that this is not something simply about parents looking at children. It's also in a way, it's all of us. Oh, we're, so we're well all said. ages at once. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I've had the privilege of officiating all three of my children's weddings. Same here. And the experience of standing before my two daughters and my son and their spouses, and I'm looking at these, you know, 24, five, six-year-old adults. And I, I think one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is not just collapse on the floor and weep or take down these two men who are taking my eight-year-old daughter from me. Right. So, uh, you know, I right. we both spend a lot of time speaking publicly yeah. and other, but the, uh, I mean, the privilege, but also the sense of the swirl of images, of moments, of memories. I mean, it's, it's why, you know, in Psalm 77, where, you know, the author is talking about when I remember, I grieve mm. because the days we once had are yes. gone. And yet his resolve is not to not remember. His resolve is to return to the event to remember. Right. And that's the exodus. So, right. you know, this notion of re remembering, if we think about that word, we have many members within us, and we're to bring them back together. And that, I think that's, again, where you go, oh, my gosh, to discover who we really were and are, that's what the final moment of receiving the white stone for me is. You know, that Revelation 3.17 is, I will one day know my name. I will know the name that my father has on my behalf. And to think that most of life is something of a preparatory process to learn what our name isn't, what our name might be, and to, in one sense, play in that field of co-writing, as you put it, mm -hmm. the script of how do I live out the calling of my name that I know but don't know? I, 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 there's no adventure no adventure in life more compelling mm. than that. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to switch gears for a second. I had an um, interesting phenomenon that I was a senior pastor of a large church for a while, and, and large churches attract wonderful people, and they unfortunately attract uh, crazy people. And not one, but two Christian psychologists, one was a man, one was a woman, one was young, one was old, one was a long-time Christian, one was a new Christian, almost in identical words, uh, kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, Dan, just you should know that of the troubles, you have, the problem people you have in your church, a lot of them are just playing crazy. And, uh, and they're narcissists, and they're sociopaths, and they're borderline personal personality disorders. And I just want to run that by you. I want to ask you if you think that's true. I want to ask you if you how it applies not just to churches, but to maybe the workplace economic settings. Of course, in business, you can fire somebody. 
you can't fire somebody from your church. I mean, there, there's a process, of course, but you can't, you can't just tell them, pack your bags and get out. Um, were these two psychologists right or wrong? And what does it have to do with besides the church uh, and educational institutions? Well, let me recommend a book first and then jump into it. Yeah. Chuck, De, Chuck DeGroat uh, wrote a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Yes. And it's a darned good book because what he's addressing is the reality that for whatever reason, uh, the believing community uh, is very drawn to narcissism. Mm. We like narcissistic leaders. Yeah. We like people who are empowered within our world who bear some of the thin skin grandiosity, but the charisma, the power, yeah. the allure, the seduction. So if we can just start with the fact that, yeah, there are people in the church who bear those realities, but we often empower narcissists within our parachurch church communities, and it's a nightmare. Uh, you know, uh, I didn't want you uh, to say that, <laughs> but, but you're right. Uh, you're well, absolutely and, right. And let's just, again, underscore that the very structure of pathology always is a failure of love. I, I'm not saying that there are not many other factors, but the reality of we love power and, and we want power. And actually, we've been given power through the ascension to be given a kingdom that we're meant to use to serve the kingdom of God. And our so, neighbors. And, 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 and that is not what a narcissist is desiring. Right. And again, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to excoriate. I don't think narcissism is just a character flaw. Often, narcissists come from heartbreaking story trauma base. But nonetheless, we're all called to, in one sense, receive the truth, tell the truth, and be molded by the truth. So if we can start with that framework that, that narcissism is something that we may be actually very drawn to, mm. uh, then we can say the narcissistic structure is also highly entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And often the people within our world who make a boatload of money, who are often given a boatload of power because they made a boatload of money, end up having influence that is not based on their maturity, but based on their power. Can, can I just jump in and say uh, oh, power yeah. and wealth, but also I, in my experience in the church and other organizations, people view other people through their skill set. That is, you're not, you're not exactly a person. You have skills that we find useful. And uh, I think it's, it's not the same thing as empowering narcissists, but you know, if, a lot of, unfortunately, Christian leaders are very good at something. They're very good at reading people. They're very good at motivating people. They're very good at speaking or singing. And we're just going to look the other way at these flaws that we see, but we're pretending we don't because we get way too much out of being associated with this person's skills. Yes, yes, yes. And again, at one level, we're all looking to survive. Yes. And the higher amount of skills, uh, you know, you are able to push apart 
something of the chaos that we all feel each and every day of our lives. I want someone to tell me how to make it through to the end of my life. But often, rather than teaching scripture, we teach it in a way in which we align ourselves with a follow me and it will work out for yeah, yeah. you. I've got a path, follow me, tribalism in a word. Uh, yes. I'm your tribal leader. You don't know what to do with life. I'm going to point you a certain direction. And people are yeah. looking for a sense of direction. And, and to some extent, they don't care what that sense of direction is. Exactly, exactly. And, and then if we can disrupt that, then right. we're disrupting the grandiosity that exists in every one of us. You know, so something of that look at the log in your own eye you know i've got i've got to deal i've got to deal with my own grandiose i mean nobody starts a school simply <laughs> because they're called by god yeah. you you start a school because you think that the schools you've gone to didn't do as good a job as you think they should have done. Yes. So between being defiant and critical mm. and then presumptuous and grandiose that's problematic. Well, all I can say is you go start a school and realize you're going to screw it up just like everyone else did before you and after you. Doesn't right. mean it can't be good, but I think that's part of now the task of being able to go, if you can look at the log in your own eye, then you've got the freedom to begin to go, no, you're, you're threatening me by your pulling your money away. Uh, I'm not going to play that game. Or it, with a borderline personality disordered, which was the context of what I lived with with my mother, yeah. I, I knew that I had a power to keep her alive. Yet I could never bring her any degree of quote unquote happiness. Right. So I was living in the tension of having to serve, 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 but nothing ever worked. Mm. So the reality for those who are engaging true pathology is that it makes you crazy. Yes. I mean, there are crazy people, yes. but more important, they're going to make you crazy. Unless you and really know how to push back and can pull away from, from uh, the attacks that you're receiving. And, and that's why I go back to that term of deal with the log in your own eye. Yeah, yeah. I struggle with lust. Yeah. I struggle with anger. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. Now, if you can't address that in your life, I, I have to have the ability to deal with the log in my eye, but I'm not going to let you escape the reality of what's true for us all. Mm. And if you won't deal with your consumption of others, that's lust. If you will not deal with your desire for vengeance, that's anger, then we don't have a sufficient foundation for a conversation, no matter what the issue is. There has to be the commonality of creation, recreation, with the acknowledgement of why I need to be recreated if we're actually going to have, be it my marriage, my children, my grandchildren, or the narcissistic donor I'm dealing with. Yeah. And yet, all of that becomes the playground for redemption, as long as I don't need the donor. I don't need, and again, this is a dangerous phrase, I don't need my marriage to work. 
I love my wife, but if I make my marriage a God, right. then I'm going to be under the weight of that idolatry rather than committed to the woman that I've been given. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. And so you're, uh, my, my next question, in Bold Love, you have this uh, section on loving evil people and loving foolish people, mm. which uh, one of my friends, like, I talked to one of my friends, he said, be sure to ask Dan about that section. <clears throat> I read it 15 years ago and I'd kind of forgotten how good it was. But you're, you're heading in that direction right now. You're saying, look, mm -hmm. to love a foolish or evil person, you have to first of all recognize the folly and evil in yourself yes. and not view you at, yourself as their judge, their arbiter, or, or even their savior. Uh, that's sort of point one. You have to approach with humility, understanding whatever they do to you or other people that you're trying to defend, you do similar things. You may not be as severe. You may not right. be as consistently disinterested in others, but the same kinds of sins reside in us all. So that's sort of the preparatory approach. But uh, do you want to tell us anything else about how to love? Oh, I don't know. How do you love a foolish person? Not, not evil. I mean, obviously, folly and evil begin to overlap at times. If somebody's foolish enough long enough, it feels very evil. But sort of a run-of-the-mill foolish person, how do you love them? Well, it, it start with what? who is a fool? Yes. The one who says there is no God. Uh, and, and again, I think there are a lot of Christians who ultimately, though they would sign in their blood a doctrinal statement, mm. fundamentally, they live as if there is no God. Yeah. Uh, and so what does that actually look like? It's the independent, isolated, demanding person. Mm. Well, I just described the narcissist or yeah. in some ways, the person who, even if they are bound into certain systems of belief, the conviction of their own awareness of sin and their deep awe and gratitude is lacking. Yes. So I always want to look to that question. Are you amazed and are you grateful? Yes. Those are the two categories I read in Romans 1, 18 and following. The nature of idolatry or worship right. is they lack gratitude and they're not in awe. Right. So awe and gratitude become the quintessential categories for being able then to say, their absence is always an indication of some level of foolishness. And yeah. now to love a fool means you need to first and foremost know we're called to love our enemies. Mm. But that does not mean you concede, that you comply, that you create a commitment structure that does not name what's true. So just being able to name, you know, to a good friend who's a fool, I don't trust you. I love you. I don't trust you. Here's why I don't trust you. So there has to be honesty, but with humility. And the humility is, I don't trust myself. Right. And here's why I don't trust myself. But here's also why I don't trust you. Yeah. So that ability to tell the truth in a relationship where I'm not condemning I'm actually inviting us to struggle together to become more mature. But if you can't bear that data, then you're going to find some way to attack me or defend against it, which ultimately means we're going to be further divided. Right. I'm going to name that division. And to the degree that in the process of naming, the division becomes greater, 
then what you will eventually find is that friend no longer wants to be your friend. Right. Uh, and so I don't have to end friendships. I, I just want to love. But by loving, and not saying I do it well, but by loving, a lot of quote unquote friends don't want to be your friend. Yeah. So very different than loving somebody committed to doing harm consistently and with delight. That's what yeah. I mean by the word evil. Yeah, yeah, right. The, the, the aim to harm versus accidental harm. Hey, um, I'm going to run something by you. This I've spent most of this morning working on promises, God's promises. And I, I came to conclusions remarkably similar to what you're saying right now, that a lot of Christians view promises essentially deistically. I'm going to make a list of God's promises. He's promised to do this and this and this to me. And the reason why we wrestle with things like, you know, Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way you should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. We view that as God guarantees me this. So I just want God to do stuff for me. And if I label it a promise, then he more or less has to, as opposed to the way the Bible views promises, which is that they're all fulfilled in Christ one way or another, and which, which takes us away from God giving me stuff I want, right? to seeing Christ as the center of my hope. Oh, yes, yes. Well, uh, we both know Reggie Kidd, yes. and, uh, who taught New Testament at, at Reformed. Right. And, you know, he, he underscores that when we read and sing the Psalms, we're reading Psalms that actually are about Jesus. Yes, right. But Jesus actually sang on our behalf. So as we come back to a Christocentric covenantal perspective, then we're basically coming back that we get included in the promises to Christ. And in that, a bastard like me gets included in the promises of Christ. Look, if that doesn't bring awe, I don't know what does. <laughs> a misfit, if that outcast, doesn't bring, unwanted. Like me? Me? <laughs> I, I like... Okay, I don't want to die of cancer. I'm not currently doing so. Good. Uh, I don't want my marriage to end. I don't want that. But the bottom line is, in the middle of this, his covenant is never broken by my lack or failure to keep, shall we say, the lesser covenant structure. So mm. when I, I, I hold that vassal notion, mm. there's something that just should indeed bring me back to a, like union with Christ. If that is not like one of the sweetest gifts that you taste each day, then the question is, what are you eating? <laughs> right, that's good. Thanks. Hey, uh, we don't have a ton of time left, and uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll have another conversation in a while. I have uh, rapid fire questions that I like to ask people. Please. And are you ready? Yeah. Um, do you still love what you do? I know the answer is yes. What is the number one? I, I mean, your your passion is so manifest. But what's the number one thing that makes you jump out of bed in the morning? And go. I, I want to go, or at least after I get my coffee, or you know, walk around the block or something. What's your number one love? I, I get to be part of people's stories. Mm. Like, I like people watch Netflix. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, I get to actually be part of Netflix episodes in people's lives. Oh, so, and, yeah. and the real story is so much better than the Netflix story, isn't oh, it? Oh, infinitely. You better. know, the stereotyping and the story has to go this way because of the conventions. Yeah. Um, what's the most frustrating aspect of your calling? How do you, you know, I like to say we all take out the garbage 
people think, oh, Dan Allender, he's a speaker, he's a writer, he's a professor, he was a president, the most glorious life imaginable. How do you take out the garbage every day? Meetings, meetings, meetings. <laughs> uh, to me, a, a meeting is a reminder that I will not spend eternity in hell. <laughs> they can be hellish, that's for sure. Um, how do you need God's mercy in your work? When, when have you failed? I know you, we all fail all the time, but when have you really needed God's mercy? You know, God's given you a lot of um, outward success, let's call it, uh, and you're, you're a great guy, but you're also a sinner in need of God's grace. When do you, when do you feel that? Um, uh, most recently dealing with uh, our staff of color, Mm. And being further, further aware of, like, I don't get it. Mm. I don't know what it's like to be stopped by a policeman and wonder literally if I'm going to be killed. And we're talking about brilliant, attractive, competent, 25, 35, 45-year-old people of color. So when, when I begin to see the effects of a world I've lived in that like all of a sudden in the last five years, there has been a peeling back the layers of my own white privilege and bearing both the the typical white fragility of like, no, 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 no. And on the other hand, feeling incredible guilt and, and false responsibility and yet being able to center on what does it mean for me to lament with dear friends mm. who have suffered certain forms of evil that I've never had to endure? Right. And I'll just remind, uh, I'll just, maybe it's not reminder. I mean, you're Jewish, so yes. as am I partly. And uh, so we're not completely unfamiliar. And yet, just because our skin is a slightly different pigment, yeah. uh, there are certain things that are not going to happen to us. Yes, Even exactly. Even if things did happen in Russia or Germany in the past, they, they're not part of our current experience. Exactly. It's, it's... Or, or as many of my Jewish friends, even in the last two to three years, have borne levels of direct assault, even yes. in this so-called liberal city of, of Seattle. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, ethnicity in this day is bearing a level of blame shifting, a level of scapegoating that uh, it's been there for a long, shall we say, uh, many centuries, but it's getting clearer. And yet that's that's where I indeed seeing my own need for grace, even right. in not just my failure of my friends, yes. but in how defensive I am, mm. how reluctant I am uh, to address some of those realities. Yeah. And plus, to be honest, uh, the fact that you're well-educated and you, you kind of can't hide that, that adds an additional layer that not everybody has by any means. Uh, um, 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 important to underscore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you do to relax or have fun? Um, I, Becky and I walk a lot mm. and I mean, it doesn't matter where or when, but like, like after this podcast, we're going to take about a 30 minute walk. Great. So walking, but if I can get near a river, the answer is fly fishing, fly fishing, fly fishing. Yeah. If practical considerations were completely irrelevant, what would you do for a year? Oh, I'd be a fly fishing guide. I would be taking you down the river. And if you don't know how to fly fish, 
I don't think there's any, you know, we're teachers. Both yes. of us are like, that is my primary category. And the joy of watching another person catch a fish. Mm. I mean, I love, I love catching trout. Yeah. But to help someone catch their first or 30th trout, uh, it is a dopamine thrill <laughs> rush. Well, I think you're safe from some of the major afflictions or, and addictions of life. If if your main addiction is uh, catch, helping people catch fish, you're probably going to be okay. All right. Uh, my last question is, who should I interview next? Oh, gosh. that Well, Chuck DeGroat yeah. uh, would be a great follow-up, particularly uh, on narcissism. Uh, or Jay Stringer. Uh, who's written, I think, one of the best books on sexuality mm. uh, in our day. Uh, so I would, uh, uh, Chuck Chuck and Jay, not All together. Right. But they could do well together, but, <laughs> but those two would be great. They're too interesting for one. Hey, uh, Dan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time, your insight. I think you've given us a lot of wonderful insights and good things to think about. Uh, deeply Dan, appreciate your ministry and thank you. and uh, give us the title of your of your new book just just so we can find it. It's called Redeeming Heartache, mm. and I can't remember the subtitle. Okay, Redeeming Heartache, Dan Allender. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Dan. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about faith and work cohorts, Leave us a message and more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Faith and Work STL and find the video version of the show on our YouTube channel. All these links are available in the podcast show notes and on our website. Thanks for listening.